This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is episode 440, Elendil or Edronax. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. It's Friday and it's time to talk tech with your favorite Michaels, Michael Martin and Michael Rowe. Unfortunately, Andy Piper can't be here with us this week. So uh, welcome, Michael. Hey there, I'm bringing you greetings from the western part of our great state of North Carolina today from Morganton. Um, so I'm a mobile headquarters for podcasting and boy, we've got so many fun things to talk about. Let's get right to them, Let's shall we? We so shall. the first thing that's on the list is uh, is Flipper. We've talked about this before, a yes. while before. A long time and ago. Yeah, I, I, we'll have to find which episode we talked about it. But it's a device that allows you to do some interesting sort of things with Wi-Fi. And apparently, with this little old device, you can go and crash any iPhone running iOS 17. And this is all over the news this week. Yeah, so. yeah, it was funny. It was all over the news because I, I thought we had talked about it before, and 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 I remember when it was coming. The across, device, like, yes, it just smells familiar. Uh, now it won't crash every device. All you got to do is turn off your Bluetooth. Well, which yes, means you and can't how many use people your do that? AirPods or your <laughs> phone or your car or your car or, or anything whatever. or your watch <laughs> or whatever, right? But besides so. that, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's kind of like a Bluetooth denial of service attack, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of my my read against it. And um, when I first saw this, I, I remember because weren't we singing like the Flipper faster than lightning song when we saw this the first time? Something Could have like been. That. I, I would have thought about Flipper, the uh, the Dolphin TV show from the early seventies. Yes, that that's the one with the theme song of faster than lightning. I don't remember that. Part. Uh, I will find it for our show we, we've notes. We've got to have not the show notes. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the TV show, but I was living in Germany and I saw it on German TV. So uh, it probably didn't even have German. It probably had German ly- lyrics for us. So <laughs> schneller aus Blitz. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, als Blitz or some Blitzen. Uh, so uh, let's move to the next uh, interesting little device, which is not readily available for everyone yet. Not but yet. you know, it is coming coming to a uh, uh, Apple store near. Coming you to a soon. wallet near you. <laughs> yeah. So you noticed this article uh, yes. that the. Um, iOS 17.2 is getting spatial audio capture for spatial the iPhone video. 15 Pro. So, oh, spatial video. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, and yeah. I know both 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 you and Andy have iPhone 15s. Mm-hmm. You have the Pro, I believe. Yes. Did you get the Pro Max? Yes. Okay. So, so I can't remember if Andy has the Pro or just the 15, but uh, I figured one of you will test this out for me soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to be on 17.2, and I'm on 17.1 at well, the 17.2 is in beta right now. I've got the yeah. beta installed, but I haven't seen anything on my 14 Pro Max, so uh, I won't get to play with this. Yeah. Well, and it'll be interesting to see what the what the filming then generates, I guess, because yeah. uh, it'll be hard in a uh, 
flat surface to get more of that 3D effect, I suppose. But maybe, maybe I will. I don't know. Well, you know, that's a good question. If you have, for a while, there were uh, some flat screen TVs that... I guess all of them are flat screen now, so it's kind of redundant. <laughs> there were some TVs uh, <laughs> that uh, that had 3D screens uh, as an option, yeah. and I'm wondering if they would, if you had an Apple TV, if you could watch 3D video that way. You had an Apple TV and a 3D TV and 3D yes. glasses. Yes. And stood on one foot. And you didn't have a pro. You didn't have the vision, the Apple, and, and hang on to an antenna just so. Yes. Then maybe uh, all that would work. While singing yeah. the Flipper theme song. Maybe we'll have to see. This this will be it'll be fun to to see and test it a little bit. I I have done some of the cinematic recording on the phone, but I've not yeah. really done much more with that. It seems yeah, you to really have to do the editing people. to take advantage of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to want to find particular people in the screen to say, oh, that's the focal point, and, and it's storing enough information you can move the focal point around. But I haven't really run it through you know, any editing to really take advantage of it. So before we leave our, our Apple section, even yes. though we're not an Apple podcast. No, um, not at all. <laughs> we, um, we've been talking amongst ourselves a little bit about the, uh, the new M3 machines that have been announced. And you found an article by Jason Snell over on Six Colors that was pretty intriguing about converting from one machine to another these days, right? Yeah, you know, you know, one of the things that people like about being in the Apple ecosystem is, you know, it just works, right? Yeah. And and the upgrade to Sonoma, at least for me, has probably been the cleanest upgrade in a long time, uh, as you might remember. Was it uh, 2019's upgrade during WWEC crashed my hard drive and I had to mm. literally rebuild my machine from scratch at WWDC. Uh, and some of the yeah, other ones since then, I've, I've had issues with my work machines. I, I've had issues with every machine for every <laughs> Apple upgrade over the summer for Mac OS. Uh, but Sonoma, surprisingly, has just been painless. Well... I guess painless is a relative term because one of the big things that's happened is uh, Apple has gotten much more granular in their permissions and their prompts for permissions across applications and directories and parts of the system as they lock down more and more of access to certain areas on your machine from applications. And to that end, uh, Jason still has this picture of his migration from his, I guess it's from his M1 Mac to an M3 Mac. Uh, and the first launch after the upgrade, he took and let it completely come up all the way and then took and untiled all the different permission pop-ups <laughs> that showed up uh, during the reboot. And boy, it's annoying as heck. <laughs> this this yeah. this picture just shows you how 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 granular it is and how much of a pain in the patoot it is too. Yeah, it's just a ton of different pop-ups and so you would have you'd have to think that this was something that uh, our friends in Cupertino probably were aware of and maybe there is a migration assistant capability that can pull all of those pop-ups somewhere else. No, this was using the migration it. tool. 
This I know, my but, but, that, but there should be. There should be. I'm there saying should there should be. be right? <laughs> you know, there, there are people <laughs> that have lived the last 20 years of their lives in a Mac OS environment. And you do want to make it as easy as possible to move from one machine to another and not oh, yeah. lose your context or and focus. And it usually is. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's amazing. Usually all you have to do is there's a couple of permissions that you have to give. A couple, yeah. right? There's maybe some apps that are not installed via the App Store. You might have to keep you know, reapply license codes depending on how they store their license keys. And and then you're up and running. I mean, I, I got my uh, studio, a uh, Mac studio up, you know, set up within like an hour. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> from an iMac. It was, it was amazing. Good. So, but yeah, this is, <laughs> and, and, and uh, the, the really funny one is there's a little video in there and I, I recommend you look at it on the cascade of alerts. <laughs> So, so let's move to new alerts that you can get while you're driving. Yes. We have a, a couple of interesting car stories. One that I found, and longtime listeners will remember that I'm a big fan of Waze. I actually haven't used it that much. I did not use it on my trip today. I've, I've been using Apple Maps much more so than, than anything before. But Waze now has a very intriguing new feature about letting drivers understand when they are entering an area that historically has had accidents. And there are a few places, like if you're going west through Greensboro, there's a, there's a section where 40 and 85 split that if you are familiar with the area, you know that's a bad place and you got to watch for it and, and pay attention and be on high alert because there are people who go, oh no, I wanted to be on the other highway. Uh, but <laughs> something like this could be really useful for folks that are not familiar with the areas they're driving in and kind of get themselves in a little bit of a better watchful state. So what, well what done, Waze's. What I find interesting about this story is, yes, it's beneficial to the drivers, but Google can take this data and sell it to the municipalities or, or the regional areas and say, hey, this is an area where historically you have issues, you may need to look at restructuring that exchange, right? Um, so hmm. in Atlanta, uh, northern part of Atlanta, uh, where I-85 and 285 connect is called Spaghetti Junction uh, because of all the different overpasses and underpasses and turns and rights and lefts that all kind of congeal in this big blob of confusing cement and asphalt. <laughs> um, and the the years that I lived there, it seemed like they were always working on it to try to improve the problems that were going on there, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. in any type of historical uh, longitudinal data about a space could be beneficial for space planners in, in uh, highway planners. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there are some who feel, for example, that roundabouts are terrible things and I love they don't like them at all. I, don't, I love them too. Uh, but you could, you could use the data to actually show where things have gotten better. Or you can use other information like when did people break hard to now show where there were possibilities of crashes that were averted by alert drivers and what are the conditions that are around them and provide that to tra uh, traffic planners and highway planners and the like to improve those areas now with real data as opposed to uh, you know, using traffic accident data to then take a step to improve it. So there's a so, lot of stuff that could be here. Like you uh, said. It's a shame Andy's not on the show today because uh, 
I, I'm a big fan of roundabouts. There's a lot of roundabouts in, in the UK. Um, and I want to ask you this question because I don't you, think Andy. many people in North Carolina understand roundabouts. And the question is, and I'll give you my answer after yours, but I, I, I have an actual answer. To oh, this. you want to ask me this question, not yes. Andy. Okay. Yes. All right. I, here we go. I'm I ready. was going to ask Andy because Andy would know better. Uh, he might. So what, when do you signal with a roundabout? I, I personally signal anytime I'm moving off of street. So if I'm entering a roundabout, I signal. If I'm leaving a roundabout, I signal. I signal every time I'm doing something other than driving straight. But that's okay. just me, and that's something I've instilled in my young drivers as I've been teaching them how to behave when they're in traffic. Uh, what What is your answer to said question? My answer to the question of when do you signal on a roundabout is you signal when you exit. Now, of course. if you're taking the first immediate right, you know, you come into it and take a right, that's just a right, and the signal would be as you go in and out at the same time. Um, but I see people who signal on the way in and don't signal on the way out. And it's yeah, like, no. me. No, I do, I do both. And there's, a, there's an important reason for that. So I'll give you this from my traffic experiences today. And, and that is when you are even moving in a straight line and there's slowness that comes up ahead, you know, just hitting the brakes hard is a signal for people to maybe they're going to pay attention, maybe they won't. If you yep. hit the brakes a couple of times, it's flashing at them. And if there is a real urgent stop, I'm also hitting the hazards because that flashing that does something to the human brain that says, wait a second, something's going on. So even entering a roundabout, I do the blinker to enter, even though the only thing I can possibly do is go the correct way yeah. or the wrong way in a roundabout. I'll still signal because the flashing blinky light signals behind me that there's an entrance into the roundabout. It also signals to anybody who's or in the roundabout, there's someone who is coming in, and it's it's a possibility that we can avoid an accident in the first place if people are just a teeny bit more aware. So, in and out for me, anytime deviating from straight. I I, I would love to know the rules in the UK. So yeah. So Andy, we'll we'll touch on this <laughs> Dri next week. Driving in the UK next week yes. on the games at work. How do you drive <laughs> in the UK? Driving at work. Uh <laughs> um, now, Andy found this particular next article, and I, and I read it too. And I actually, um, I, I was I was pretty uh, I was pretty angry about it in the end because I had actually looked at the Chamberlain MyQ device because I wanted mm. to have something that would work with HomeKit. That when I arrived, because my phone could say, "Oh, geofence, Michael's arrived." Then the garage door could open up for me and it would be great. And I would go in and then after a set period of time, it would automatically close my garage in case I forgot, which I rarely do. Right. Uh, I thought that would be great. Now, um, the MyQ folks, the, the smart people over at uh, the Chamberlain organization who make pretty much every brand of garage door opener, and this is their device to be able to interact now with a home kit or other kind of network to be able to interact with said device that is not done by the clicker the rfid uh, not rfid um radio frequency clicking device that you would have in your car um, they are now removing that functionality to integrate with these other environments and 
that is not necessarily a happy thing, but there have already been people who have worked around it and have attached a small other device to allow you to still continue to use it for how you desire. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a an unfortunate trend of a bigger story. Right? Yeah. Um, so when I first moved up here, I remember going to the House of the Future. Uh, mm-hmm. And this yeah, was over an at IBM the, um, showcase State house of mm-hmm. all the cool uh, uh, tech that was available at the time. I'm trying to remember the technology. It wasn't Zigbee. It was before Zigbee. Uh, it was like something T, not 10 base T. Anyway, doesn't really matter. Um, and we, we got to a point where y- you had really three major technologies going on. And, and I'll put Apple as the least of the majors just because of penetration with HomeKit. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, Google's uh, HomeKit stuff or HomeKit-like stuff with Assistant. You've got Amazon has their stuff. Uh, and then you have the Zigbee stuff, which is like the big one in the market. And over the over the last few years with um, Threads, which I can't, mm. I can't remember if it's still called Threads, but that was the agreement between Google and Amazon, uh, Apple, Samsung, and many Sony, and many others to come up with a new open standard for um, IoT devices in the home. And I I think what you're seeing is uh, an example of companies positioning their stuff to be either unique and better, uh, therefore a true closed system, which is what I read this Chamberlain story is. They disabled APIs that were being used to integrate Mm -hmm. them into a larger system. And they're either doing that in advance of moving to support threads or they're doing that to say, if you want to use our stuff, you're going to use all our stuff. And if they're doing the latter, then it just, it's a no go for me, right? Because we've got a garage door that's starting to act up yeah. and I'm thinking, what would I get next time, right? Uh, when I first got it, it didn't have any type of integration with HomeKit or anything else. Uh, and this would take Chamberlain off the list for me completely. Yeah, well, good luck finding a different brand because they practically own, own all, all the garage door opener brands. Yeah. And the 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 MyQ was a separate device. I mean, now you can get that functionality built in. To me, Michael, it's all about the data. Who owns the data? Yeah. Who controls the data? And if you put the data behind something like HomeKit or Alexa or whatever, um, you're now not allowing someone who wants to monetize this data access to that data. And they're uh, like, no. Obviously, you know who owns the data. Yeah. The car companies, right? <laughs> oh, that this is just bonkers. Yes. So, 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 Michael, you found a really intriguing article about who gets to collect and keep data. Yeah. And it's the car companies. Yeah, we, we talked about this, uh, I want to say, two or three months ago with the Mozilla's Foundation's uh, analysis. It was in September of uh, the privacy statements on all your major vehicles and that they were, um, how do you put it politely? Crap. <laughs> um, and uh, so there were some lawsuits that were raised. A class action suit was uh, raised in the United States uh, about uh, this collection of data by automotive companies. And um, evidently, according to the latest ruling uh, reported on Tuesday of this week, 
um, they threw out the they threw out the case. Uh, the car companies have the right to collect your data, uh, and given the transition to more and more software components and capabilities in your vehicle being driven by software, this has become a bigger and bigger privacy issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you think about it, when you think about it, there are lots of computers in your car creating lots of data and you're now really signing up for not just the physical hardware components of the vehicle, like the brake system and the exhaust system and everything else. You're, you're also signing these software licenses mm-hmm. because the downloadable content and the updatable content is essentially a software license. Now, you and I are both not attorneys. We've said that plenty of times on the show before. But if you are uncomfortable with certain elements of the data that your car is creating, it is difficult or impossible to prevent that from being harvested, collected, and used. Yeah. Right. And this is an example here of a lawsuit that tried to leverage the um, the Washington Privacy Act for yeah. the state of Washington uh, to showcase that the, this level of collection should be inappropriate and prohibited. However, the judge's ruling said, no, um, the car companies can collect. Yeah. I, so, I, I, I want to see how this plays out. I'm sure there will be uh, more suits, uh, different types of suits to come forward. Uh, I think the judge basically saying they, they came forward with the wrong kind of suit. Uh, yeah. But still, it it scares the crap out of me, especially as uh, I, you can no longer get a vehicle that's a dumb vehicle, right? I mean, or you, or you same thing for a TV. Yeah. Same thing for for a lot of other devices. Um, I I will not go into grand detail because I don't want to, but I will say that we have some new lights in our house um, where I have done a microphone ectomy. Because there didn't need to be a microphone in, the in light. those lights. Yeah. Right? And I don't want them on my network, and they're not. And I don't want them listening to me. And because I have done a microphoneectomy, um, they are not able to listen to me because the microphone has been removed from the circuit board. So should people have to do this? <laughs> Is, yeah. Are those the lengths that we need to go to in this day and age? I mean, well, you probably used to be simple. broke your licensing agreement with the light bulb owner. I, I didn't sign an agreement. Oh, you probably did by plugging it into a socket. <laughs> I, n- n- maybe, but I did not enable any software, and I did not explicitly agree to any terms and conditions. Yep. So I I would debate that, but. You know, it used to be simple, right? Your your VCR would blink 12 o'clock all the time. Yes. That would be easy, right? We're now in a state where it's a little bit different. And um, to, to stay in this area of AI and licenses and a few other things, just to touch on it ever so briefly, uh, in a, a recent episode, we talked a little bit about the Humane AI pin. Yes. And it has now been launched. Um, the orders will be available or you will be, or you'll be able to order the AI pin here um, in just a couple of days. I think uh, uh, next week is when, when it's available. And some of the interesting things that I saw about the uh, video announcing it and the structure and how it's going to go. 
Uh, it's not a thousand dollars. It is. It's less, but it's still not something you'll pick up on a whim as you're strolling through Costco. Uh, it's like uh, uh, almost seven hundred dollars, I think, six hundred fifty, seven hundred, somewhere in that range. Uh, yes, there's going to be a subscription. Uh, that's twenty four dollars a month, the way they've structured it right now. And its notion is that. It is not listening to you. There's no wake word uh, to activate it, much like Star Trek, the way we talked about it. You have to touch it to wake it up and then interact with it. And part of the subscription is to allow for it to interact with the AI services in order to then be able to react to what you're asking for. Right. So if you were to say, hey, can you give me a list of... Uh, certain uh, antibiotics that start with the letter E um, that have been released in the U.S. in the last two years. Uh, that kind of a query could then be interacted on from this particular device. So uh, we'll, we'll talk probably about it a little bit more next time because it requires some digestion and understanding about all the things that it says and does. But I'll include a link to the video directly from Humane. And it's... Um, uh, I don't know that it's going to fully replace people's phones, that the idea was get people off their screens it and won't. go forward. But the, here's, here's the thing I was thinking about, and that will be wonderful to contemplate. Uh, much like there are requirements when you walk into a public space about what can you bring with you, right? No shirt, no, shirt, no shoes, no service. Uh, might there be restrictions about bringing in something like this? Uh, and I don't think the answer is yes, because your phone is an AI device in that way too. But this might be an interesting further element as we go into the future. Well, I, I do know there are signs at like the gym that I go to that say no phones. And I yeah. see people on their phones the whole time. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a camera in this, but yep. it is not on unless you explicitly turn it on. And they have... Um, uh, 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 I'm, I'm thinking of, of, a, of a song right now, but they, they call it a trust light. Um, yeah. So the trust light comes on, so you know when it is engaged, and it is visually, it is vi a visual indication that it's recording. And I, I don't remember if Google Glass had that. Did it? Did yes. it have some indication? Yeah. That the, it was the light would on come on recording? when it's videoing. Okay. Okay. So good on that. Next fun topic, Michael, and I love this. Um, and, and did it come from you or no, Andy? No, from Andy. Ah, okay. Well, big kudos to Andy. Um, <laughs> we knew he, you'd he like found, it. He found a game, a little, uh, little game from the Vercel group, I guess is who they are. And it's called Antidepressants or Token. And you have to guess whether or not the word that is displayed on the screen is an antidepressant or a Tolkien character. So best thing to do is check it out, Go have some it. fun with it. And uh, I, I shared it with one of my friends who's a pharmacist, and uh, apparently his Tolkien skills were not as strong as his pharmacy skills. So, <laughs> And I would assume yours were the opposite. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my Tolkien skills were much better than my, uh, my pharmaceutical knowledge and skills. Mine were equally bad. <laughs> <laughs> now... Um, Let's let's move to a different kind of game. This one is a game based upon RoboCop. Yes, um, RoboCop Rogue City, um, and you, I think, found this particular one, and it has some yeah. really cool characteristics to it. R R RoboCop was was uh, came out when I was in college, and 
was playing at the Dollar Theater, and I think I watched it six times in the theater, right? Uh, so the original RoboCop movie was just fantastic. Uh, so this is a game that takes place after the events of RoboCop 2, which I do remember watching but not being impressed by. Uh, mm. But before RoboCop 3, which I have no memory of whatsoever. Anyway, um, so RoboCop is the story of a police officer who is mortally wounded in the line of duty and comes back to life as a cyborg police officer, combination robot and, and human uh, in Detroit. And what's really cool about this game is, one, uh, the graphics look fantastic. It looks like a TV show for the most part. Two, you are RoboCop. And so basically, if you've watched RoboCop, he's nigh invulnerable. Uh, And so you are basically playing this video game in close to God mode. You're not very fast, but you're nearly indestructible. Uh, And so, you know, I I like playing first-person shooters where I can't be hurt. (laughs) Uh And this this just seems like it'll be so much that. And the RoboCop franchise was was really interesting to me. Uh, The trailer looks fun. The, The review is, you know, some of the voice acting is okay, but the dialogue is kind of crappy. But by the end of the game, you enjoy both the, the villains and the good guys, etc. I just think this would be my perfect first-person shooter. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, that's high praise there, Michael, isn't it? Yes. Um, I want to give a tiny shout-out just really fast for a friend of mine who was involved with Risk of Rain, uh, which has had a new release come out uh, just this past week. And just to say a big congrats on getting that one out the door and it's being succeeding in the marketplace. Um, Michael, uh, maybe we finalize, we finish up here on a question you'd asked me of, Hey, Michael, when are you going to get involved in this 3d printing space? Yeah. I I didn't, I didn't answer either you or Andy about that because I know you guys are big 3d printers Mm -hmm. and part of the reason why you asked that is there is a big 3d printer (laughs) that we should (laughs) just touch on fast and close on out for the day. Yeah, this is this is a, a Kickstarter for a I think it's like thirteen hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars, something like that, US. Uh, mm-hmm. Orange Storm Giga Printer. Uh, which the the part that I find really fascinating is one, it is a huge build plane. Um, I think it's uh, I, I can't remember the exact volume, but uh, about a meter tall and maybe three quarters of a meter square. That's uh, just crazy big. You could do, you could do like a chair in there. What what's nice is you can put three parallel sorry, four parallel print heads. So you're printing a lot of something. Mm-hmm. You can print four of them at one time uh very fast. And so it, it may not be fully the speed of the um the uh, printer that Andy got, uh, but I was doing a show some years ago and we were printing some props with my 3D printer. And I remember spending about a week and a half printing out these props. And with this, wow. you could, and they were like the same thing over and over and over again. I needed to print like 60 of them. Um, with this, I could print four at a time and cut cut the speed, uh, cut the duration down dramatically. So very, so, very so cool. It's Looks a amazing. Kickstarter. And it's a Kickstarter. 
and you can still join. There's 53 days to go on day of recording, and they've raised only a paltry $3.17 million of their $100,000 goal. Yeah. What What's not wow. clear to me is what slicer does it use? Uh, you know, all, all the things you need to know when you're printing, right? Uh, does it use wireless printing to it, or do you have to put an SD card in with the models on it? Blah, blah, blah. Can you do remote monitoring? You know, all, all the fun things. But just size-wise, it's impressive. I I think if you want to be a big 3D printer, you can now print 3D big. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Wow. All right. Well, Michael, I think that's about it for this week. We'll be looking forward to coming back again next week with even more stories and more fun and more things. Drop us your links. Give us your insight. And in the meantime, um, have a great week. We'll see you later. been listening to gamesatwork.biz the podcast about gaming technology and play we are part of the blueberry podcasting network and would like to thank the band random encounters for their song big blue you can follow us on twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz or at our website at gamesatwork.biz gamesatwork.biz